How's your prayer life? Do you find praying easy? Or maybe like me, you know that praying is something that you should do, that you try your utmost to do, but actually find really difficult. Well, I don't stand here today before you as someone who has prayer sussed. Probably like some of you, I find prayer really difficult. I'm fine with reading the Bible. I quite enjoy reading the Bible and getting to grips with scripture. But you know what? I find prayer really hard. Committing to do it regularly is hard enough. Knowing what to say and how to say it is quite another thing. I really struggle. And it's actually encouraging to find the disciples in a similar position. At the beginning of this passage, Jesus is praying and he asks, uh, uh, Jesus is praying and his disciples ask him to teach them to pray. No doubt they had witnessed Jesus praying on several occasions and wanted to be able to follow his example. Perhaps they had seen how prayer at the end of a long, busy, stressful day reinvigorated Jesus and they wanted the same thing for themselves. So what does Jesus teach them? Well, there's a big passage here on prayer, but I want to focus just on verses two to five this morning, which is what we know today as the Lord's Prayer. It's a slightly abridged version compared to the one that we normally recite, but it is the Lord's Prayer nevertheless. I'd like to think about three points as we consider this prayer. One, to whom do we pray? Two, we pray for God's glory. What does that mean? And three, what does it mean when we say that we pray for God to meet our needs? So to our first point then, whom do we pray? Jesus tells his disciples to pray to God as Father. And this is something that we often take for granted. And indeed, we may well begin our own prayers with Father. But just think about that for a minute. This is truly astonishing. Jesus tells us to address God as our Father. The word he uses is actually Abba, which is how a small child might address their father. It's actually closer to Daddy than any other name. We have an almighty God then who created the heavens and the earths, who's King of kings and Lords of lords, and yet we have the privilege of calling him Father. What an incredible privilege that is. One of Jesus' disciples, John, who was no doubt present when Jesus was teaching his disciples how to pray, later wrote, See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. That is what we are. That's John's first letter, chapter 3, verse 1. That, of course, is the same relationship that Jesus has with God. They are father and child, and we too are children of God. With this in mind, then, there should be clear implications for how we pray. When we pray, we should do so as a child speaks to their father. We shouldn't be concerned about using the right language or saying the right words. We should simply share what is on our minds, tell him what we are thinking about and tell him what is on our hearts. Perhaps sometimes, maybe in group situations, we might feel nervous about praying out loud. 
Maybe because everyone else just seems so eloquent. Well, eloquence actually counts for nothing. If you have the gift of eloquence, fantastic, good for you. But that is not what God wants. God wants to know what is on our hearts. My son Daniel, out the back there, is starting preschool, uh, starting primary school rather, in September. And this year he's been attending a brilliant preschool in our village. And the preschool uses a great little app on our phones called Tapestry. And each day his workers put a, a couple of photos onto the app to show what Daniel has been doing on that particular day. Every evening, though, when I get home from work, I ask Daniel, what did you do today? But his stock answer is always, look on tapestry. (laughs) And of course, I had already looked on the app. I already knew what Daniel had done that day. But as his father, I wanted him to tell me himself what he had done, what he had learnt, how it had made him feel. And the same is true for God. God is omniscient. He knows what we've done. He knows what is on our hearts. But as a loving father, he wants us to approach him and talk to him in our own language, as his children, and to make conversation with him. William Mason, the poet, clergyman and divine, once wrote, Prayers move God, not as an orator moves his hearers, but as the cry of a beloved child moves an affectionate father. I can tell you, I don't think I find anything more gut-wrenching than hearing the cry of one or other of my children. If Mason is right, and I see no reason why he shouldn't be, then every time we pray to God, he is profoundly moved. What a truly remarkable thought. So it is that Jesus tells us to call God Father, when we pray. So to our second point, we pray for God's glory. What does this actually mean? Father, Jesus tells us to pray, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Well, there are, of course, two versions of the Lord's Prayer commonly in use in this country. The traditional version, which is heavy on these and thines, and the modern version, which uses use and updates trespasses for sins. What I find a little strange, though, about the modern version is how it updates hallowed be thy name to hallowed be your name. Maybe it's just me, but it strikes me that the difficult word in the traditional version of this prayer is not thy, but hallowed. What on earth does this actually mean? I wonder how many people actually recite this prayer on a regular basis, but simply have no idea what the word hallowed actually means. Well, I looked it up, and it means to be set apart as sacred, consecrated, or holy. So when we pray, hallowed be your name, we are affirming that God's name is holy. When Moses encountered God at the burning bush, he says to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, And they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? In reply, God said, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am who sent me to you. This name is actually regarded as so holy that it is not generally used. Indeed, throughout the English version of the Old Testament, the name is shown as the word Lord, 
in all capitals. The literal name of God is holy. But it goes far beyond that. In biblical terms, as elsewhere, the word name is often used to refer to a person's reputation. That's what Jesus is getting at here. It's not just that God's name is holy, but actually God himself is holy. God, therefore, is to be set apart as sacred, consecrated or holy, because that's exactly what he is. And we almost create a loop here, because since God is sacred, consecrated or holy, it makes sense that actually his name should be too. So when we pray, hallowed be your name, we're not just affirming that God's name is holy, we're affirming that God himself is holy. But we're not just making an affirmation. We're praying that we would hallow God's name ourselves, that we would treat him with the reverence that he deserves. He may be our father. We may be encouraged to approach him as a child approaches their father. But we must also be aware that we must hallow God and his name. We must be respectful of him. We must speak with reverence of him to each other and to our friends and to ensure that we respect his holiness. We also pray that God is regarded as holy in the wider world. We're told that there will come a time when at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. That's Philippians 2.10. But at present, we live in a time when God's name is ridiculed every day. People take his name in vain. People mock him. People refer to him as the man upstairs or the one that really gets my goat. People call him the Sky Fairy. Well, could there be a more derogatory name, a less hallowed name than Sky Fairy? Of course, why would people who deny the existence of God hallow his name? Well, this actually feeds into the next statement in the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come. When we pray this, we are asking for God's rule to spread across the globe. We're praying that people will come to know him, to trust him and to accept Jesus as the Lord of their lives. We're praying that people would come to hallow God's name. Ultimately, God's kingdom will come when Jesus returns to rule over the earth, to make it new again, to launch a time when there will be no sickness or death. But throughout the Gospels, Jesus actually makes it clear that God's kingdom is already here and we all have a part to play in building it. It's up to us to live lives that honour and glorify Christ and that point others towards him. It is up to us not just to sit in church on a Sunday and listen to the gospel, but to take that gospel message out into our communities, to tell our friends and neighbours that there is a God who loves them. So when we pray to God, your kingdom come, we're praying not just that Jesus will return, but that God's kingdom will increase and grow in the here and now, in our own towns, around the country and across the globe. And as is often the case, we may well be the answer to our own prayer. We have a significant role to play in furthering that kingdom. 
On to our third point then. We pray that God will meet our needs. In verses 3 and 4 of this short passage, Jesus teaches his disciples to pray for three areas of their personal need. He tells them to pray that God will give them each day their daily bread, that he will forgive their sins, and that he will not lead them into temptation. Since these are the three specific areas of our lives that Jesus tells us to pray about, they must all be important. Firstly then, give us today our daily bread. Our prayer here is that we completely trust in God to supply us with all that we need to survive. It can be difficult for us to grasp this as a concept. Most people are paid monthly, maybe weekly. When we need food, we visit our local supermarket. And in the UK, we have such an advanced distribution system that if there is ever a shortage of one particular foodstuff, it can generally be sourced fairly quickly from elsewhere. The disciples, though, would have been used to living hand to mouth. Many were fishermen, and if they had a day with no catch, they would have found life difficult. If a week went by with few fish being caught, life would have been extremely difficult. Jesus told his disciples, though, and through them us, to trust that God will meet our needs day to day. We should place our trust in him to provide us with all that we need to live. Of course, by asking God each day to meet our needs on that particular day, we are able to develop a stronger relationship with God, our Heavenly Father. That process of coming before him each day, asking that he will meet our needs on that particular day, means that every day we will find ourselves in conversation with him. By doing so, God also meets our spiritual needs. Building a relationship with God should be something that we do day by day. Jesus tells us to ask God to provide our daily bread each day. There's no spiritual equivalent of a deep freeze in which we can stash a week, a month, or even a year's supply of bread. It's not possible to stockpile in our relationship with God. I used to have a really close relationship with my gran. I wouldn't say that I saw her every day, but I did see her very often. I also had a great aunt who I'm sure was just as lovely as my gran, but I didn't see her very often. We used to visit her once or twice a year. And I didn't really look forward to these visits to my great aunt because I didn't know her that well. And I struggled to make conversation with her. Well, if our relationship with God is like my relationship with my great aunt, then prayer will be difficult. We won't really know him and will struggle to speak to him. If our relationship with God, though, is more like the relationship I had with my gran, it will be significantly easier because we will have worked to build a relationship in which we know each other. That easy relationship comes through spending time with each other. It comes through spending time in prayer and by studying the word. That's why Jesus encourages us to meet with God day by day, to meet our needs each day. The second need that Jesus encourages us to pray for is our need for forgiveness. He tells us to pray, forgive us our sins as we also forgive everyone else who sins against us. We must place our trust in God, not just for our physical needs, 
but also to meet our spiritual needs. We are all sinners. We are all lost. Each and every day we do things that dishonour God, that displease him, that damage our relationship with him. Left to our own devices, we are totally lost in sinfulness. There's nothing that we can do for ourselves to change this situation. Many think that provided they live a good life, they will be rewarded by a place in heaven. Many people believe themselves to be fundamentally good people and ask, therefore, how God could possibly choose to punish them. But of course, these people have a distorted view of the Christian gospel. We can't earn our salvation by doing good deeds. We can't earn our salvation by going to church, whether that's just at Christmas and Easter or every single Sunday. There is only one way of being sure of our salvation, and that is by placing our trust in Jesus Christ, acknowledging that he died for our sins and rose to eternal life. Jesus shows us through this prayer that it is good to acknowledge our sinfulness and to place ourselves before God each day and ask him for his forgiveness. In our Old Testament reading, Psalm 32, we saw what happened to David when he failed to acknowledge his sins. He says that when he kept silent about his sin, his bones wasted away, his strength was sapped. But when he acknowledged his sin to God, when he didn't attempt to hide his wrongdoing, he felt his burden lifted. I wonder if the sin in your life which you have tried to keep hidden. I wonder if there's some wrongdoing which you have failed to bring before the Lord. Do you feel that burden resting heavy on your soul, sapping your strength? Well, take it to the Lord. Do not hide it from him. Be open about your sin and ask him for forgiveness. You will no doubt feel that burden lifted, just as David felt his lifted. But there's a second element to this section of the prayer, though. Jesus tells us to pray, forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. In order to understand God's forgiveness, we have to also forgive those who have wronged us. It sounds so easy easy when we recite the Lord's Prayer, but for many, this is far from easy. I'm sure that most of us will have felt incredibly wronged at one point or other in our lives. Maybe we've been the victims of crime or impacted by criminal activity. Maybe we might feel as if we've been deeply betrayed by those whom we love, who we felt close to. Well, it can be incredibly hard to forgive in circumstances when we have felt deeply wronged. But we are to forgive people who have wronged us, no matter how hard it is. If we fail to forgive, resentment can fester inside us, resentment that fails to honour God and can place a burden between us and him. Forgiveness doesn't come easy to us, but neither does it come easy to God. God has watched generation upon generation of people turn their backs on him, reject him and disobey him. He could have allowed resentment to build up within himself. He could have turned his back on us, but he didn't. Throughout history, he has desperately wanted humanity to turn back to him. And in order to make this possible, he sent his son, Jesus, to take our punishment 
and to die in our place. He watched as his one beloved son was nailed to the cross, subjected to extreme torture and a painful death, precisely to ensure that we might be forgiven. Our forgiveness came at great cost. Maybe our forgiveness of others comes at a great cost too. But we are called to forgive. Perhaps doing so gives us a better understanding of our forgiveness by God. I am certain that by forgiving others, we also act as conduits for God's love. By forgiving, we are playing a part in bringing about God's kingdom. If there's someone that you have been struggling to forgive, why not endeavour to forgive them in the week ahead? Maybe to have a conversation with them. Don't allow resentment to fester in your soul, but forgive just as God has forgiven us. What about that final petition? Lead us not into temptation. When we pray this, we're asking for God to keep us on the straight and narrow, to keep us on the path that he has ordained for our lives. Temptation will inevitably come. It is all around us. Indeed, even Jesus himself was tempted in the desert. But we pray that God will strengthen us so that we will follow Jesus' example and not to succumb to temptation. We are dependent on him to guide us through our lives, to keep us from straying, and we pray that he will equip us to lead us the life, that we will bring glory, maximum glory to his name, that we will bring his kingdom about right here and right now. Jesus gives us a powerful example of how to pray in these few verses. We should pray to God as our Father, speaking to him as a child speaks to their dad. Our first priority should be to proclaim God's holiness and to pray that his rule will impact the world. And we should make ourselves dependent on him, trusting in him to meet our daily needs, to meet our spiritual needs and to support us as we strive to live the life that he has marked out for us. Why not, in the days and weeks ahead, try to work on your prayer life, to see prayer not as a religious duty, but as an essential part of a loving relationship? I, for one, will certainly be trying to do that.